If you are here for the first time today, you're joining us in the middle of a series from Habakkuk entitled, How to Live by Faith in Perplexing Times. And we are on chapter 3, we'll finish up uh, next week. But as we get into chapter 3 this morning, we just want to review where we started from and tie all the context together. Now the book of Habakkuk, it began with Habakkuk crying out to God, and he was perplexed about the sin that was going on around him in Judah. He was a believer living in the midst of an unbelieving nation that was entrenched in sin. He saw people getting away with murder. The law was not restraining people. And Habakkuk asked God how long he was going to let such injustice go on. Then God subsequently, he answered Habakkuk by telling him that he took the sins of Judah so seriously that he was raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to come and ravage the land as swift as leopards, as fierce as a pack of wolves. And it would be like an eagle swooping 200 miles an hour out of the sky to strike. And understandably, this shocked Habakkuk. He was no doubt thinking God was going to judge the wicked sinners of Judah and let the faithful remnant remain. But that was not the case. God revealed to Habakkuk that he was going to exile the whole nation. And this caused Habakkuk to cry out to God again in perplexity and ask how God could judge His people so severely. And how God could judge Israel with a more wicked nation than itself and subvert the created order, making the Jews slaves again to a tyrant nation. And on top of the fact that Yahweh was going to exile Judah, Habakkuk was commissioned by God to go and proclaim this message that disturbed him so much. Not only did he have to believe it, but then he had to go proclaim it to others. It was a very unpopular message that got Jeremiah thrown in the stocks, thrown in a pit to shut him up. It got others killed. It got them killed because it went against the progressive narrative that the wicked king liked, that things were going well, things were going good, and Yahweh was going to save them from the coming enemies. But God told Habakkuk, take this message of my judgment and go proclaim it to the people. And in answer to Habakkuk's perplexities concerning God's judgment, God gave him the hope that the righteous one will live by faith. But the proud heart that is not upright, that is set on wickedness, like the Chaldeans, like the wicked in Judah, they would eventually be judged by God. A series of woes in chapter 2, woe to those who do not live by faith, Woe to you who live according to your own law. Woe to you who are proud and trust in anything other than the one true God. For your end will be judgment and disaster. Because Yahweh is the holy God who is enthroned in His holy temple as the judge of all the earth. And all injustice will one day be judged at the appointed time. So chapter 2 ends with a hope that the righteous shall live by faith, but the wicked will be judged. And though Habakkuk did not get his questions answered in specifics regarding when or why God was doing what he was doing, God encouraged Habakkuk to trust him. To continue to live by faith even when life didn't make sense to him. In chapter 3, opens with a prayer of Habakkuk to God. It's overflowing out of Habakkuk's faith. But within this prayer is a vision of the future coming of Yahweh and Habakkuk's trust in the revealed Word. As we've come to Habakkuk chapter 3, let's read it this morning before we get into uh, the text. I'm going to read the entire chapter, though we're not going to cover it all today. We're going to cover all but four verses. So Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1, is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. 
In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence and plague followed at His feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, Habakkuk says, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. So this final chapter of Habakkuk, it has all the marks of a psalm with, with the heading, designating it as a song. It has the Selah breaks throughout, which are typical of the psalms, and instructions at the end indicating that it's to be sung with stringed instruments. Thus, this prayer of faith was written and then subsequently used in corporate worship as an expression of faith. And as we'll talk about next week, it is one of the most amazing and profound professions of trusting in God no matter what happens in life. We're going to talk about that next week, but this week we're going to cover verses 1 through 15. And today we're going to see a faithful response to the hard words of God's judgment that Habakkuk heard. We're going to find reasons to continue to hope and trust in Yahweh as our Redeemer. So I've broken up the chapter, the entire chapter, into five points. We're going to cover the first three today. They are the confidence of Habakkuk in verse 2, the confidence of Habakkuk, and then the coming of Yahweh in 3 to 7, and then the conquering of Yahweh in 8 to 15. So our first point for this morning is the confidence of Habakkuk beginning in verse 2. The first part of verse 2 says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Habakkuk opens the prayer with a double use of the name Yahweh, the covenant name of God, and it's in between those two uses, at least in the Hebrew, the English has a different order, the ESV does. In between those two uses of the word Yahweh is Habakkuk's hearing and fearing. The emphasis is on Habakkuk's hearing and fearing. Habakkuk declares that he has heard the report of Yahweh. 
This word report refers to someone's reputation. Habakkuk has heard of Yahweh's reputation. And when it comes to Yahweh's reputation, there is hardly a more succinct and repeated phrase than that of Exodus 34, 6-7 when it comes to Yahweh's reputation. Exodus 34, 6-7 is a God's self-declaration about who He is and how He acts in history. You don't have to turn there, but Exodus 34, 6-7 says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This was the self-revelation of Yahweh to Moses, It was repeated throughout the Old Testament as a declaration of who God was and how He acted in human history. And this was played out throughout the Israelites' history. And the original revelation there in Exodus became the consistent reputation of Yahweh and how He deals with people. And I think this is the report or reputation Habakkuk was referring to. He had heard about this Yahweh and he feared the actions that accompanied such a report. That word I fear, it's a verb that can be divided up into three semantic range categories, various meanings. The first one is fear associated with terror. The second one is fear associated with respect. And the third is fear associated with worship. And Michael Shepherd in his commentary says, and I quote, in the present context, this is not a declaration of amazement, reverence, or terror. This usage of Yerah, the Hebrew word for fear, falls within the semantic field of faith or into that field of fear associated with worship. Habakkuk here, he's expressing his trust as he worships in fear of God. But Habakkuk has confidence that what he has heard about Yahweh, and in particular about his judgments in history past, he's expressing his trust in such a report. That God's actions will certainly follow. And he knows what is coming. He believed what God has told him, thus he fears and worships him for it. And it wasn't what Habakkuk originally expected. But he adjusts his own thinking. What he originally expected was God to come and judge the wicked of Judah and let the remnant stand. But his expectations were not in alignment with reality, so he adjusts his own thinking to align with Yahweh, and he worships Him for what He has promised to do. And he then makes a request of Yahweh, a very profound request of Yahweh, in light of believing this report of past actions and how he has promised to act going forward in bringing the Chaldeans. Look at the verse 3 in the middle of it. He says, In the midst of the years, revive it, and in the midst of the years, make it known. There's one imperative here. Which in the Hebrew, when there's an imperative and it's from an inferior to a superior, he's not commanding God. Rather, it's a request. And Habakkuk requests that Yahweh revive such a report in the midst of his own days. To act, to do what he has said he's going to do in the midst of his own day. Habakkuk is asking Yahweh to revive such a report of himself as a God who is merciful and gracious, but punishes evil. He's asking that God make himself known, reveal himself once again as the God who punishes the wicked. And he's asking God for him to do it in the midst of his own days, which is quite astounding. I think if I was Habakkuk, I would have been tempted to pray and ask God that he'd postpone it till I'm gone. I don't want to be around to see this, but Habakkuk says, 
Let it happen. His desire was for his fellow countrymen to be turned back to Yahweh. And he knew that that was only going to happen through God's rod of judgment to turn them back from their proud ways. The very profound request he makes here for Yahweh to bring about what he has promised. So Yahweh reviving the report of him and making known his actions in the midst of those days was the only thing that was going to shock the nation out of their idolatry and sin. So Yahweh believed, or Habakkuk believed Yahweh in his report and what he promised to do, and he prayed that God would bring it about. Even knowing that such a thing might be the death of Habakkuk. He didn't know if he was going to survive the exile. Most of the people were going to die. But what a confident faith we see in Habakkuk there. That he knows, even if he is killed, the righteous shall live by faith. He had the hope of a resurrection, even if he was put to death in the attack of the Chaldeans, asking God to bring it about. And in such a request for God to bring about the judgment, he has declared, Habakkuk has one more last plea at the end of verse 3. He says, In wrath, remember mercy. One commentator says, and I quote, With aching heart, he urges God to be compassionate in the coming turmoil. End quote. And another Commentator Roberts dramatizes it a bit and puts it in his own words when he says, and I quote, When you renew your work, let your wrath, which has brought such turmoil upon us, be tempered by the memory of your mercy, so that your new work, the fulfillment of the vision, will mean our salvation. End quote. But Habakkuk praying this prayer is akin to the prayer that Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, where He said, Let this cup pass, but not my will, but yours be done. Habakkuk doing the same thing, knowing the coming wrath, being terrified by it, and yet He says, Let it come. Your will be done. And what is interesting is Habakkuk's change in tone over the course of the book. At the beginning of the book, he was crying out that God, that he would bring judgment and justice to the land. And after hearing what that actually looks like, he says, yeah, do that, Lord, but remember mercy. Remember to be merciful. You might say Habakkuk here was the first to learn to be careful what you ask for. The judgment that he asked to come was far greater, far worse than he had thought. But here we see an exemplary man of faith who has a heavy burden to bear, who didn't fully understand God's ways, and yet he trusted him even in the midst of what would be the greatest challenge of his life. He knew God's judgment was coming that he would be collateral damage in some way, and yet he said, let your will be done. We should, as believers, we should let this inform our prayer life, that all of our fears, all of our desires be subject to the will of God, that we pray for God's will to be done even when it comes at great cost to us. May we have the same Confident faith, as Habakkuk did here. So in point one, this prayer opens up with an expression of great faith in Habakkuk. He asks God to bring the judgment that he has promised, remembering mercy. And after this beginning prayer of Habakkuk, with his requests, uh, he begins to receive and see a vision of the future. He begins to see a vision of, this is point number two, the coming of Yahweh. The coming of Yahweh. Let's just read this again, verses 3 to 7. It says, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand and there He veiled His power. 
Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. And I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. One of the issues in interpreting this section from 3 to 15 is whether Habakkuk is describing a past event, which is kind of how the ESV relates it with past verbs, or a future event. And many people think this is looking back at a past event because of the similarity in language and imagery to the first exodus in Egypt. God coming from Taman and Mount Paran or south of Israel near Edom towards Sinai. They were the path where the first exodus came up to the promised land. There's also the language of pestilence and plague that's reminiscent of the first exodus. However, there are several descriptions in this passage that just don't describe the first exodus. The leveling of the mountains, the shaking of the earth, the Lord himself coming to put all enemies to death. And plus, the first verb in verse 3 kind of sets the tone for the passage. It's in the imperfect, which is typical for the typical verb form to indicate a present or future event. One commentator says, the opening verbs indicate clearly enough whether the action is set in the past or in the present and future. And the imperfects that open 3-3 clearly set the action in the present future. This difference suggests that Habakkuk is reporting a visionary experience, end quote. So Habakkuk is seeing a vision, as was referenced in chapter 1, the vision that he saw, or chapter 2 rather. And this better explains Habakkuk's response in verse 16, where Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. That response of Habakkuk wouldn't make a whole lot of sense if he was just recounting a past event that he was already very familiar with. But it makes perfect sense for that to be a reaction of a scene that he's just seen in a vision. So I am interpreting this as part of the vision that Habakkuk saw from the Lord of a future event. Not necessarily the destruction of the Babylonians, but even further to the end times and the second coming of Christ. Habakkuk begins with an image of God from Sinai in order to describe God's future deliverance of his people in terms of a new exodus. And just as he defeated the Egyptians and provided for his people in the wilderness, including the giving of the law, and brought them into the land, so he will judge the wicked and deliver the righteous in the days to come. The, new, the language of a new exodus is found in other places in Scripture. Numbers 24, for example, says his king, that is Yahweh's king, shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break up their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. The language there of God bringing his king out of Egypt But Israel has, this is the book of Numbers, Israel is brought out of Egypt 40 years earlier and they were yet to have a king. So this must refer to a future event, a king coming to crush his enemies. And that's what Habakkuk sees here. Yahweh the king coming to crush his enemies. And Yahweh has seen a similar vision here where the king comes to save his people. But Habakkuk's vision gives us quite a bit more detail Again, look at verse 3. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Again, this could be interpreted as present. So in the vision, Habakkuk sees this happening in the present as if it's presently happening and he's there. He's watching Yahweh come. 
And he says it is this Holy One which emphasizes the radical otherness of God. He is transcendent above all others. Separating Him, elevating Him over any who would stand against Him. Verse 4 says, His brightness was like the light rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. So Habakkuk sees Yahweh coming, and he gets a glimpse of the image of God, and in particular His hand. And out of His hand are coming rays. Rays is uh, most often translated as horns. It's the word for horn, Karen. But it is used to refer to shining rays of light. And here it's used to refer to a lightning bolt. So Habakkuk sees this image of this glorious God coming and it's bright and shining and the only thing he can make out is a hand holding a lightning bolt. But it's so bright, then the brightness veils his power. And as this brief image of a hand holding a lightning bolt is veiled, he continues the description in verse 5. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. So pestilence or uh, disease, think of a pandemic, that's what a pestilence is. And plagues, pestilence going before him, plagues following behind him. The word pestilence, it's the consequence that David picked for the census in uh, 2 Samuel 23. It killed 70,000 people in three days. So this is what Habakkuk sees going before him, going behind him. So imagine a boat with a wake behind it, just spreading out till it hits the shores. Yahweh's coming. Pestilence, pandemics, they're awake before him and behind him, awake of plagues. It's a gruesome and terrifying picture of judgment and death. Habakkuk's response of quaking and shaking in verse 16 makes sense if he was seeing the horrors of pestilence and plague with the coming of Yahweh. Then verse 6 says, He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. And then the eternal mountains were scattered or shattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. So Yahweh is presumably standing on the clouds. He's coming. He's surveying the lands. And all the earth shakes before him. The mountains are shattered by him and the earth bows down before him. The ground is leveled. And the language is similar to that of Revelation. The plagues and the disaster that the Lamb will bring upon the earth. So turn quickly just to the end of Revelation. I want to read this because I think this is the same scene that Habakkuk is describing here in poetic language. But Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17 This is the final battle where the Son of God, the second coming of Christ, where He comes to put all of His enemies to death once and for all. Revelation 6, 12-17 says, When He opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. The great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? If Habakkuk is describing this same situation, it's the most horrifying time to live on the earth. When the Son of Man comes, he sends all of his plagues to the earth to judge the rebellious nations bring his ultimate plan of redemption to completion. 
And then this portion of the vision, Yahweh is of Yahweh coming is brought to a close by the same way it started with a reference to more geographically southern places, the tents of Kushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble, ends this section of the coming of the king. But before we move on from this point, this dramatic imagery of the coming of Yahweh, I want to point out, point out and try to describe and illustrate the Hebrew grammar that doesn't translate into English. And this will also help explain Habakkuk's response in verse 16. The effects that the vision would have had on Habakkuk is found in the aspect of the verb forms that are used. There's a change in the verb forms which add drama to the whole scene and terror to Habakkuk. And this has to do with the difference between perfect and imperfect verbs. Perfect verbs look at an action or event as a whole, kind of like stepping back and looking at the event from start to finish or the big picture. Imperfects, on the other hand, rather than viewing the event from beginning to end or the big picture, it looks at the event or the action from inside, entering into the situation, so to speak. And there are a couple of these changes in these verses, a couple of these aspect changes that dramatize it a bit. So I want to try and paraphrase the verses and indicate the aspect changes to give you the same sense that the Hebrew would have if you were reading the Hebrew. So the language describes Yahweh as coming from far off. It gives the idea that Habakkuk sees him coming and with these perfect verbs, this perspective of looking at the whole picture, he sees Yahweh's splendor and glory from east to west. He's looking to, towards the south. He sees him coming and his glory fills the horizon from east to west. Sees the whole earth full of his praise. There's the big picture of his coming in this glory, this brightness. And then there's this aspect change. All the verbs change. So you might think of it like a camera angle change in a movie. The aspect or the camera begins to zoom in to the inside of the event, to the inside of this cloud that the Lord comes riding on, to the brightness of God's glory. It zooms into this sun-like brightness. And the only image that he can make out is a hand holding a lightning bolt. And then in a moment, this hand is veiled by the brightness. And Habakkuk is there. In his vision, he's been put in very close proximity to the holy God of the universe, before whom none can stand and live. Thus, Habakkuk would be terrified as Isaiah was when he was caught in his vision before the thrice holy God. And as this brief image, so imagine him, he's been transported in the vision right into the midst of this situation. And as the brief image of the hand with the lightning bolt is hidden by the light, he looks behind and before, looks around, looks away from the light. And before Yahweh, he sees pestilence going before him. And as he turns and looks behind, he sees plague following but the Hebrew puts him right in the middle of it. Imagine being right in there and you turn away from the brightness. In this direction, you see the, the pestilence. You see, you know, think of people suffering from the bubonic plague, dying left and right, and you turn away from that and you look behind and you see plagues, more death. The aspect puts Habakkuk right in the middle of that situation. Terrifying. Depictions of death. And if it's the same vision that happens in Revelation, he's witnessing in a moment great populations of the earth being slaughtered, killed by plague and disease. So no wonder Habakkuk in verse 16 is terrified out of his mind, shaking. He had an up-close view of all of the horrors of Yahweh's judgment upon the world. 
And then the aspect changes back in verse 6 to the perfect verb, zooming back out, looking at the big picture. But it's just as terrifying. It's Yahweh shattering and leveling the mountains of the earth. And as He comes, the rebellious people of the earth, they shake in terror. They're startled. They jump in fright as the earth bows down in a procession before Yahweh as He comes. Very, very terrifying imagery. And this is why Habakkuk felt sick to his, down to his bones, down to his stomach. His legs became like jello. That's what Habakkuk saw. That's what the coming of Yahweh is going to look like in the end. But how do we apply these verses? Well, as believers, we should have the same fear that Habakkuk did in verse 2. Fear associated with worship if we are believers, but if unbelievers, fear associated with terror. But as believers, this should lead us to rejoice that this is the God that we serve. Majestic and glorious, powerful and mighty, coming to judge wickedness and save His people. We rejoice that we're on His side and we worship Him. And it's always appropriate when we're examining texts like this, we ought to examine the stewardship of our own lives. Have we been caught up with the cares of this world? Or are we living for the coming of our King? Are we living with kingdom priorities or earthly priorities? And we should have this horrifying, terrifying image of judgment burned into the back of our minds that we might remember that we are here for the purpose of evangelizing that one more person might be spared of this terrifying event. Our glorious and majestic King is coming. That was the first part of Habakkuk's vision. Next, we see the purpose for which he is coming is revealed, and that brings us to point three, the conquering of Yahweh. The conquering of Yahweh in 8 to 15. Yahweh comes to conquer all who are opposed to him and his people. He's coming to conquer them and provide salvation for his people who are oppressed. Let's read verses 8 to 12 again. It says, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses? on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury and you threshed the nations in anger. This section begins with a rhetorical question about the object of God's wrath. Did God come in his wrath because he was angry with the inanimate creation of the rivers and the sea? Obviously not. He did not bring his chariots of salvation because his people needed saving from the seas or the rivers. And one could make this mistake because there's imagery of Yahweh drastically changing the landscape, violently changing the landscape of the earth. One might conclude that that is the object of his wrath. But verse 12 makes it clear that his anger is really towards the unbelieving nations who have shown their circumcision and rebellion against him. But also in Canaanite mythology, the people of the land, they had a god for nearly every aspect of creation. Moloch Bel was the god of the sun Agibal was the god of the moon, Arsu the god of the evening star, and Azizos the god of the morning star. Baal Hermon was the god of Mount Hermon to the north of Israel, and Yom was the god of the sea and the rivers. And when Yahweh 
the one true God comes, all creation, with the exception of sinful, rebellious men, react appropriately. The mountains that have never moved, they churn at the sight of the coming of Yahweh in his wrath. The deep gives up its voice, it gives up its hands in surrender to Yahweh. The sun and the moon and the stars, they've remained on course since the beginning of creation and they stop as they see Yahweh's judgment going forth. All creation is in awe of Yahweh, revealing that He is the one true God and all others are false gods. And this is revealed as creation does what it is supposed to before a holy God. All creation reacts as it never has before in light of the coming king as he sends his spears of lightning barreling against the enemy. But why did he come out with such anger and fury? Look at verses 13 to 15. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of many waters. So Yahweh comes in this dramatic fashion for the purpose of bringing salvation to his people. And this would give Habakkuk great hope because Yahweh revealed to him that Judah was going to be exiled and enslaved. He's given the hope here that one day the Lord would deliver his people from their enemies. And this is the answer to Habakkuk's question at the end of chapter 1, whether the Chaldeans were going to keep mercilessly killing the nations forever. He gets his answer here that no, they're going to be judged. One day Yahweh will come and he will put a stop to all injustice and destroy all those who stand opposed to him. One day Yahweh would come and bring salvation to his people. But he would also bring salvation or deliverance for his anointed. That word anointed, it could be a reference to the faithful remnant of Judah which would be parallel to people in the line above, or it could refer to an anointed one in the line of David, or more specifically to the coming future king, the Messiah. This word for anointed, it's the Hebrew word Mashiach, from which we get the word Messiah. One commentator says, and I quote, the eschatological context of the vision would seem to suggest a messianic figure. It's important to keep in mind that the source for the imagery of this vision is the Exodus story, so it would be out of place for this to be a reference to David or to one of the Davidic kings of the past. It is more likely that the anointed one here is the messianic king prophesied in Numbers 24, 7 to 8 that I read earlier, whom God brings out of Egypt in a new Exodus. So this language of salvation for the anointed future king in the line of David It's actually throughout the Old Testament. Uh, 1 Samuel 2.10, if you're in my class in 1 Samuel, I went over this a bit more extensively. If you want to go back and listen to that, you can. But in Hannah's prayer of faith, it's another prayer that looks down through uh, a vision, through the, the corridors of time where Hannah sees this same end. And she says in 1 Samuel 2.10, The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And then again at the end of David's life, he proclaims this, For this reason I praise you, Yahweh, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king. And he shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and to his offspring forever. 
And John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, he picks up on this theme in Luke 1, 67 to 79, and he speaks of Jesus as being the fulfillment of the coming son of David and the king who would bring deliverance to Israel from her enemies and bringing the forgiveness of sins. Jesus accomplished that first part of that redemptive plan in purchasing our salvation from sin by dying on the cross. But the final part of the redemptive plan would not happen until the end of the ages. When Christ would come again, put all of his enemies under his feet once and for all. And Habakkuk's vision is a vision of the end of the events where the anointed one returns after providing salvation for his people to put the rebellious kings of the earth to judgment once and for all. And the description of this judgment is found in Revelation 19. And I just want to read that. If you can turn over there quickly, Revelation 19. And this is at the end. I think I mentioned this. I misspoke earlier, speaking of Revelation 6. This is at the end where the Lord comes to put everyone, all of his enemies, under his feet once and for all. Revelation 19, 11 to 21 is what I'm going to read. This is a dramatic, terrifying end to all who would oppose Christ. After Satan has been released from the thousand years, he'll be defeated, but he gathers the enemies against God's people here in 19. Verse 11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has the name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which, he with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And his robe and his thigh, he has, the name, has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper. Eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with a false prophet who had received the mark of the beast and with those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds gorged with their flesh. This is the dramatic and terrifying end of all those who would remain hard-hearted and rebellious towards God. This is the same terrifying description given in Habakkuk. Go back to Habakkuk, just as we draw this to a close. Yahweh comes bringing salvation to his people, but it is by destroying all rebellious men on the earth. It's a great and wonderful day for those who are God's people. And it is terrifying and horrific for those who are not Christ's. And as we close this out, I just want you to think about what this means for you. In order to do this, I want to return back to that change in aspect of verbs in this section. So we stand putting ourselves in Habakkuk's shoes, looking from the correct perspective. Most of the verbs in this section are perfects, meaning they're looking at the big picture, the action as a whole. But there are a couple of instances where there are imperfects used, where we enter into the middle of the action. That is to say, there are certain places 
We should put ourselves into the shoes of Habakkuk in this vision. First, for the believers, we should put ourselves in the shoes of Habakkuk in verse 14. Verse 14 says, You pierced with his arrows the heads of his warriors. And then it zooms in, so to speak, and we enter into the midst of the arrows flying and hitting the heads of the enemies. It says, Who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. So Habakkuk, in his vision, he's on the ground in this cosmic final battle. He's on one side and the enemy is coming to scatter him. He's in the midst of this cosmic battle. He's standing there as the armies march against him. No wonder he was terrified when he got done with this. He was still shaken in terror. But what happened as the armies of the world are coming to attack? Well, he, Yahweh, attacks the enemy with their own arrows. In other words, the enemy has shot all of their arrows at Habakkuk and Yahweh has turned them around and sent them right back at the army to destroy them. And with this change of perspective, we are transported down in the midst of the action to see the arrows coming right at us. And we as believers are to have this image burned into our heads right here when we're terrified of the enemies who rise up against us and we have this we have this image burned in the back of our minds that ultimately Yahweh is going to take those arrows and turn them back against our enemies. We're to see and remember that Yahweh is the Redeemer and Savior. When we're in the midst of horrible situations, maybe even life-threatening situations, we must keep this image in our minds that ultimately, one day Christ is going to turn all of the things we're fearful of, all of our enemies back He's going to destroy them. We're to be reminded that even as people shoot arrows at us, He is the God of salvation. He has purchased our salvation by the blood of Christ, setting us free from sin and eternal death and will one day come to fully and finally deliver His people. So when we're fearful, we should put ourselves in the midst of this moment and picture our coming king winning. Even if it's the last second when the arrows have been shot and they're coming at us, we trust that Christ is still going to win, even if it doesn't look like it. We ought to be reminded, if our God is for us, who can stand against us? No matter what's going on in our lives, whatever we might be fearful of, whether it's the coming days or maybe we're in a fearful situation right now, we need to be reminded of this image standing on the ground with our enemies shooting arrows at us and Yahweh wins. But there's another verse that the use of the, of the use of the imperfects where the aspect changes and zooms in and we have to put ourselves in the midst of it. This is verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me again. It says, You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. So in Habakkuk's vision, he's seeing from within the action, as it's happening, he's seeing Yahweh march through the earth, almost as if he's passing by Habakkuk as he marches through the earth and trampling underfoot all those who would oppose him. If you're an unbeliever, you have not bowed your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and repented of your sins. If you have not put your faith in Christ's sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins, you have not been forgiven by God yet, then you should put yourself in Habakkuk's shoes in the midst of Yahweh's path. Only instead of being passed by as Habakkuk was because he was faithful, as a rebel, you ought to imagine Yahweh on his marching path and you're right in the midst of it. He's coming for you. The God of the universe with the scorching brightness of the sun comes on his cloud 
ready to thresh with his lightning bolt in his hand, and he is barreling towards you, coming to trample you with all of his horsemen. And you, as an unbeliever, ought to put yourself in that moment with the God, the holy God of the universe, coming and marching upon you. What are you going to do? Are you going to be so proud and foolish as to think that you can withstand the mighty one of the universe? Are you so proud as to think you are anything but a grasshopper to be crushed before him? This is the one that the sun and the moon and the stars stand still for. The mountains bow down before him. Are you stronger than they? Dear friend, this is God coming. He is coming as a conquering king to bring salvation to his people. And if you have not denied yourself and forsaken your life, put your trust in the blood of Christ, you stand in his path. But you don't have to stay there. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, dear friend, and you will be saved. Confess him as Lord, bow your knee now to him in submission. Cry out to him for forgiveness and you will be saved. Don't persist in your foolishness, friend. Repent and believe for God has wet his sword and he is about to strike. And if this is you and you know you aren't a believer or you are unsure of your salvation, I would love to talk with you. Please find me afterwards or Josh, who opened the service, or Gary, who's going to come up here and close. Find one of us. We'd love to talk to you about that. But this is the final aspect of the redemptive plan of the Lord. The final battle for the faithful. Yahweh comes to rescue His people from the enemy that would tear them asunder. But for those who are opposed to God's people and to all that God stands for, they will be trampled underfoot like grasshoppers. As believers, we worship our God knowing this is how He has promised to act in history. That He is a God who saves His people and judges wickedness. And we are to trust in this God and worship Him as Habakkuk did. And we know there are times when wickedness rises and seems to be in control of the world. But that doesn't mean God is aloof. God is the judge of all the earth. He's working all things towards this end to bring the salvation to his people. We are to trust him. You, beloved, trust him. Even when you're living through the horrors of life as Habakkuk was going to be doing. When terror comes, remember Yahweh is coming. We have the hope of a resurrection and a life to come because he has conquered our greatest enemy, sin and death. But let us live by faith, walk by faith as Habakkuk expresses here in this prayer. Let's pray. Our God, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, We worship you as the terrifying, mighty judge of the earth who comes to deliver his people. We praise you for the deliverance that we have already been saved from our sin, set free from our sin. Though we die, we've been set free from death because we will live forevermore. As believers, I pray that we have this image stamped in our minds that even though it doesn't feel like it on this earth, you win. You are coming. And we put our faith and our trust in that. And for those who don't know you, I pray that in their mind's eye, they see you barreling down on them on your horse, ready to run them over in judgment that they might be so terrified of that that they would, in faith, believe and trust in you. Help us as we go out today to live in light of this reality.
Not living in fear, but living in faith and obedience to all that your word commands us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.